What's working on purpose anyway? Each week we ponder the answer to this question. People ache for meaning and purpose at work, to contribute their talents passionately and know their lives really matter. They crave being part of an organization that inspires them and helps them grow into realizing their highest potential. Business can be such a force for good in the world, elevating humanity. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration to help usher in this world we all want, working on purpose. Now, here is your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, joining live from Dallas, Texas, which is home base for me. If you've been tuning in for a while, you know this program is a thought leadership series that enlightens and inspires listeners with insights from distinguished business leaders and subject matter experts. Here at Working on Purpose, we're committed to realizing a world where work is enriching and a purposeful part of life. Leaders inspire people to realize their own greatness while contributing their passion, and business is elevated to an unleashing spectacular impact in the world. Each week in these conversations, I hope you walk away with something that changes the way you think and that you can really put to use. Much of the content we discuss in this program is a reflection of the work I do. So as you listen, if you catch a glimpse of anything that I can do to help, go to my website at elisecortez.com and use the contact me feature to message me. Let's talk about what's going on for you and how I might be able to help. At any rate, I'm glad we're connected and thanks for listening. Now on to this week's program. With us today is Marcus Buckingham, a global researcher and thought leader focused on unlocking strengths, increasing performance, and pioneering the future of how people work. He founded the Marcus Buckingham Company in 2006 and is the author of several best-selling books, including First, Break All the Rules, as well as Now Discover Your Strengths. He currently heads all people and performance research at the ADP Research Institute. We'll be talking about his latest book, co-written by Ashley Goodall, Nine Lies About Work, A Free-Thinking Leader's Guide to the Real World. He joins today from Los Angeles, California. Marcus, welcome to Working on Purpose. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I have been stalking you uh, uh, in, for about the last 10 years, Marcus. So I'm so glad to have you on the show and share with my listeners. Your work inspires me and my work. So let me start with a big fat thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. That's, um, that's great that you've been stalking <laughs> me for 10 years. Happy to be, uh, happy to be talking to you now, Lyle. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's kick this off here, and I want to start with the end, if if we can. So, playing on the last chapter of your book, that the the lie that leadership is a thing. Um, as I said, I've been following you for quite some time, and I do subscribe to the Strengths philosophy and have used your products in workshops that I've conducted. So, I want to help. I want to help our listeners understand because I know something about you. How you found your way into the career you did, starting with finding your way to the Gallup organization initially as a scientist studying excellence in management and leadership, why this field? And, of course, I have to ask, how has your professional love life unfolded? Wow, that's, um, that's a big old question. Um, <laughs> I, um, my, I come from a family of sort of HR practitioners, I suppose. My grandfather was right after the Second World War. My father was as well. And dad ended up running, um, he was basically the CHRO of a very, very large um, brewing company that had 7,000 pubs. And back in the early 80s, he was trying to figure out a way to select better pub managers. Could you do it in a way that was scientific? Could you find uh, the right questions, the right talent the best pub managers had? And could you select more like them? And he came across in his global search for a company that knew how to do this. He came across a chap by the name of um, Dr. Don Clifton. Mm. Um, and um, so he brought Don Clifton over to our house when I was I think, 16 years old. 
And uh, Don, as you know, um, was the grandfather of positive psychology, significantly influenced Marty Seligman in terms of thinking about studying what's right about people. Um, Don, obviously, a psychometrician himself, so built reliable assessments to measure um, people's uh, talents and strengths. And I was, this was, you know, 15 years, I suppose, before we, um, we made the Strength Finder tool. But right away, I was hooked. I was just about to go up to university. And the idea that you don't learn very much about success from studying failure, you don't learn about um, happiness and joy from studying depression, um, the idea that excellence in all its forms has its own configuration and that we've got to study it to learn about it and that we don't do that, even from a very, I was 16 for crying out loud, I was just hooked. Came over to Lincoln, Nebraska, which is where the Gallup organization happened to be headquarters and, uh, headquarters, and went over there in the, in the summers while I was at university. And in 1987, uh, 88, I graduated and came to Nebraska for a year to really learn the science of how do you build an instrument that measures people's talents when they might not even know themselves. How do you do that in a way that's um, scientifically rigorous? And I stayed for 25 years. Um, and first 17 of those, or rather, yeah, first, I guess it's actually more than 25 years, isn't it? Anyway, 30-odd years. <laughs> um, and uh, first 15 of those with the Gallup organization and then wrote First Break All the Rules when I was there and obviously did the Strength Finder tool and now Discover Your Strength with Dawn in 2001. Um, that was published, I think, in January of 2001. And then, and then Dawn passed away in 2003. And I, um, I just felt like it was time to, to go beyond just measuring people's engagement or measuring their strength and getting into trying to build those things. And so built my own, uh, my own company, which is a coaching and development company initially. And then, and then we built another sort of next-gen strengths assessment called Standout in 2012, really focused on, I mean, you obviously know StrengthFinder very well, but it's for a team lead with 10 people on their team, 34 themes that you get on the response to StrengthFinder, that's a lot of complexity. So we built Standout to try and um, take all that we'd learned from StrengthFinder and create something that was... Um, a little more focused on what the team leader might need to learn about each person on their team and then built up that business. And, and then actually in 2017, uh, ADP, the huge, uh, originally payroll company came in and said, we want to, we want to take this strengths-based approach and, and, and amplify it, um, across the entire world of work. Can we buy the standout technology? And so I, I thought to myself, where if you're going to try and change the world of work, you need a lot of friends and um, ADP is a lot of people. So we said yes. And then they said, would you mind doing some of your research here through the ADP Research Institute? And I was like, absolutely. So, um, so that's kind of the, that's me in a nutshell. Um, was very, very fortunate to get connected with Don Clifton, who is, you know, a real, a real genius in this, in this world of personal strength. Um, very lucky to get connected with him right out of school. Well, while I was still in school, and then it's that's really forged my career for these last thirty years. Marcus, that was brilliant. And so, a couple things. It sounds to me there's a lot of ways that I could say this. But here in Texas, we could say you're blessed. 
you're blessed. Or yeah. we, <laughs> we could say you were, you've been selected, you've been chosen, or, you know, an angel tapped you on the shoulder. It, regardless, we, we are the beneficiary of your work, Marcus. And yes, um, I know the strengths. I've been a Galaxy by Strengths coach for years. I've used your standout instrument. Yes, I know that too. And I think at last count, I think 33 million people across the world have taken the Strengths Finder about, about that number. Is that right? Yes, it's getting up there. I wouldn't know the latest exactly right now, but um, yeah, you know, when we first built StrengthsFinder, the goal here was to go, we need to have a rigorous way to give people a language to talk about themselves at their best. And I don't think Don or I, or later Tom Rath would say that, that this is the definitive only way to describe yourself, but certainly at the time, you know, 2000, 2001, there really wasn't a rigorous and reliable way to help people have language to describe themselves. And I know at the time we just thought, well, that was a myth. That was a missed opportunity to help people um, understand who they are at their best. Um, so, yes, I feel, I don't really know what I would do otherwise. I feel blessed to be able to, I mean, I feel somewhat frustratedly blessed because we still actually don't put much rigor around helping people to identify what they love and how they can apply it, which is another way of thinking about strengths. Um, so there's a lot of work still to be done, but certainly to touch 33 or 40, whatever it is, million people, is a, that's a blessing. It's a start, Marcus, yes. And, and like you, I stand to make the world of work a better place and to be able to celebrate that the contribution that everyone makes in their one precious life, which is why I love why you wrote your book. One of the things that you say is uh, you and your co-author, Ashley Goodall, talk about this being, it's for free thinking leaders. And I appreciate how you describe those people. And there's uh, there's a lot to their definition, but I'll start with, you You say, a leader who embraces a world in which the weird uni- uniqueness of each individual is seen not as a flaw to be ground down, but as a mess worth engaging with, the raw material for all healthy, ethical, driving organizations Ah, that is just yummy, Marcus. Can you say more about who, why you wrote the book and for who? Yes. Um, the, I have a brother and a sister. And my elder brother was a beautiful pianist and composer. My younger sister was a professional ballet dancer for many, many years for the Royal Ballet Company. And I'm in the middle. And I, I am roughly the same age, obviously, as both of them. I'm the same race, was brought up in the same household. But I don't have a musical bone in my body. Um, and I wish they did, like I love what they can do and I love how they can do it, but I couldn't be them. And it became really apparent early that, to me that I was different from my brother and my sister. And so quite early on, you start going, as a, as a kid, you start going, I wonder what that is. I wonder why I'm different than my brother. C- can I become my brother? Can I learn enough skills if I just try hard, if I just put in, to use Anders Ericsson's formulation, the 10,000 hours, could I become him? Um, how much of me is enduring and resistant to change and how much of me is, is changeable? Those, are, those became for me very, very early on very interesting questions because um, I felt so immediately different and somewhat ashamed actually that I wasn't as good as my brother and my sister at something that they clearly felt as easy as breathing. Um, and so what what happens then is you start as a person you start going well somebody's going to help me figure this out right and then of course you go to school and they don't help you figure it out they help you learn the right things to pass the tests that are required and then you go to school and people and so then you go to university and again it's really more about 
acquiring certain sets of knowledge so that you can pass an exam. And then you go to work and it's sort of the same thing. You, you are not, the uniqueness of you is, is uh, at best irrelevant and at worst an annoyance that gets in the way of us getting the outcomes or getting the performance from you that we want. So it's the weirdest thing. So if I were six, you start, you, you're like, I'm unique. That's interesting. I wonder if someone can help me turn that uniqueness into contribution. And then you wake up at 35 and you're like, oh, wow, I haven't really advanced on a deep, rigorous, intelligent description of who I am and what I can contribute. And, and so when Ashley and I sat down to write this book, it was like, and the reason I partnered with Ashley, by the way, is of course he's running people for this huge organization called Cisco. Um, I'm a researcher by training and by profession, by orientation. Um, Ashley is a big time practitioner. Um, and the whole premise here is that the power of human nature is that each human's nature is different. Well, if you're going to, if you're going to actually turn that from a sentence into action, then you've got to do it in the real world. And so partnering with Ashley to go, let's actually describe what an organization would look like if we use the uniqueness of a person as the fundamental moral and practical starting point. We don't at school, we don't at university, and we don't at work. So what would it look like if we did? And the point of saying free thinking leader is forget the dogma, forget the theories, look at the real world. In the real world, people are unique and distinctive, and that's not a function of race or religion or gender or nationality. Because there are way more differences within gender than there are between genders. There's way more differences within races than between races. So where's all that conversation? Where's all those descriptions of how we make best use of us as individuals? Where's that? Uh, well, you look in the real world, you see these differences. And so the point of writing the book was to go, if we really want to build organizations, and clearly Nine Lives About Work is focused on work, it's not focused on school, but if we really wanted to build organizations that get the most out of people, we would look at the real world and we wouldn't look at theories and and abstractions and concepts. We'd look at, oh my gosh, I've got these 10 nurses on my team. But they're not 10 nurses, they're 10 individuals who happen to be nurses. There's uniqueness in them, in terms of how they think and how they build relationships and how they organize their time. There's uniqueness in them. We could either pretend that that's not real and hope that they were all homogenous, or we can deal with the fact that we've got eight unique, sorry, 10 unique individuals who have to be nurses. So the book was written to go, this is silly. We've got only about 16% of people fully engaged at work. Why? Oh, we can see why. Because we've built work, jobs, organizations, as though the humans in it aren't human. And no wonder work is so disengaging. We've built it wrong. Mm. Marcus, and we're going to dive into that. That was just beautifully rendered. Let's grab our first break. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. We've been on the air with Marcus Buckingham, a global researcher and thought leader focused on unlocking strengths, increasing performance, and pioneering the future of how people work. He's the founder of the Marcus Buckingham Company and the co-founder and the co-author, excuse me, of Nine Lies About Work, a free-thinking leader's guide to the real world, which we've been discussing in today's program. He currently heads all people and performance research at the ADP Research Institute. He joins today from Los Angeles, California. We've been talking a bit about where this book came from. After the break, we're going to get into the lies it covers. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is Marcus Buckingham, a global researcher and thought leader focused on unlocking strengths, increasing performance, and pioneering the future of how people work. He's the founder of the Marcus Buckingham Company and the author of First, Break All the Rules, and Now Discover Your Strengths, and Now, Nine Lies About Your Work. He currently heads all people and performance research at the ADP Research Institute. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. So, Marcus, before we get into a couple of the lies for this segment, I think it's important that we we discuss just really why we have these nine lies in the first place. And as you could probably tell from uh, my, the questions I sent to you, I do I did read your book cover to cover, as I do all of my author guests. And I'm very interested, and this makes so much sense to me, that you say in the book that it, it helps us to realize that the nine lies even exist and have taken hold because it satisfies the organization's need for control. These are large, complex places and they it's understandable that they would need to be able to direct their leaders for simplicity and order but i think that's an important concept for us to understand can you say more about this need for control and how it's produced these nine lies yeah well if you think about what an organization needs to do it's trying to create certain outcomes in an organized way and we've used as our model for organizations um some version of the Roman legions and then up through the Catholic church. And then on top of that, we overlaid a manufacturing process principle that was probably first um, refined by Henry Ford back in 1912, 1913 as the assembly line. And that's really the way that we've organized our work. And it was pretty efficient. I mean, the assembly line was pretty efficient. And then over the last sort of 100 years, we've taken that assembly line approach organized through hierarchical structures a la Roman legions and Catholic Church. And that's the way that we built work. Um, and when you build work that way, there are certain um, outcomes that you could predictably create, which is why I guess they came up with the assembly line in the first place. And then over the last 100 years, we simply refined and refined and refined and squeezed the efficiencies, as much efficiencies as we could out of the assembly line. So total quality management, uh, business process re-engineering, um, Six Sigma, lean thinking, lean manual, all these, all these terms are simply one effort after another to get more efficiency out of the manufacturing approach or the assembly line approach. And, uh, and we're done. I mean, we're done with it now. We've got everything out that we could possibly get out of it, and it's time to retire it. As a, as a metaphor, obviously today the hospital's under massive pressure, but even in normal times, 
um, you look at the way the hospital is organized and it's organized, it looks very, very much like an assembly line. So does a bank. Um, so does uh, professional services or consulting. We've still got this idea that, that we want, in order to create consistent outcomes, we need to have everyone in the same role, doing the role in exactly the same way. In manufacturing, we can see a few standardized pro processes. In the world of um, the white collar world, I suppose you can see it in terms of long lists of competencies, 360 surveys to measure you against those competencies. Just everywhere you look, we seem to believe that, that human uniqueness is inefficient mm. and we must break it down. And that's what we've been, I mean, no one would say it that way, but that's, if you look at what most people do in the world of human resources, it's designed to ensure compliance and consistency because that's efficient. And individuality is annoying. And that's always, <laughs> it just gets in the way. Um, and yet, the reason for the free thinking word again is to say, well, but unfortunately it's real. I will not be my brother ever. So what are you going to do about that? How do you build an organization so that you don't basically wish everyone in the same job was doing it exactly the same way and try to train everyone in the same job to do it in exactly the same way. When you want consistency of outcomes or consistency of quality as a customer experience, how do you get those consistency of outcomes without forcing everyone to do consistency of steps? How do you do that? Because if you wanted to get a consistency of outcome by following consistent steps, unfortunately, that means you're going to try and teach every single person who's an incumbent in each role to follow exactly the same steps. And if you hmm. do that, you dehumanize your organization. You create an organization that's basically trying to er eradicate what makes each human beautiful and powerful, namely yes. their unique gifts. Well, that's stupid. Sorry, to, that's stupid. <laughs> it's also immoral. Yes, it's well. Not, it's not good enough. I mean, that's, if I get animated around it, I'm, you know, it's like this, we, for people like you and me, we've got to be able to look at companies around the world and organizations and go, you can do better. You can do better. Yes, Marcus, I completely agree with you. And that is a big reason I continue to host this radio show weekly for the last five years, because we can do better. And I'm committed to make sure that we do do better. And as someone who has individualization as her top five in her top five strengths, um, yes, we can see the beauty of, of each and every person. So, and to that end, the first one of the first lies I want to talk about, I can't get to all nine of them on the show, so that's okay. We'll just give a couple sprinkles. But one that I want to start with, Marcus, is the lie that people care which company they work for. And instead, you write, what we as team members want from you, our team leader, is firstly that you make us feel part of something bigger, that you show us how we are doing together is important and meaningful. And secondly, to your point earlier, that you make us feel that you can see us and connect to us and care about us and challenge us in a way that recognizes who we are as individuals. Yes, yes, and yes. Say more. Well, yeah, the first thing about that lie, people care which company they work for. It's the first, it's the first lie we encounter because we, um, we've kind of made a god of culture, where we say a company is defined by its culture. And if you want to be a really good company, you better have a really good culture. And so that was that we thought that's, let's start with that one. Cause the best companies to work for issue of fortune magazine is the most issue of the entire year. Um, we all get animated around this idea of culture. And yet if you were to look at the real world and say, well, is that true? 
does Patagonia have some sort of unique culture that makes it similar to for everyone who works there and different from, say, the culture of Goldman Sachs? Now, on the surface, you go, well, yeah, because the onboarding is different in, in Patagonia and everyone wears a suit at Goldman Sachs. So on some level, you'd go, well, yeah, I guess probably there is a difference. But for that to be true that there is a difference, then you'd have to find two things. You'd have to be able to ask people who work for Patagonia and ask people who work for Goldman Sachs a list of questions to define their experience. And you would have to find, firstly, that everyone in Patagonia had a uniform experience of Patagonia. You'd have to find that there was a similarity. For, no matter what department you were in, the experience of Patagonianness was, was somehow uh, felt by everyone working there. And then you'd have to find that whatever that was, was not there at Goldman Sachs, that, that, those, that there was a uniform experience at Goldman Sachs, but it was different than the uniform experience at Patagonia. Um, well, you never find that. You, we've never found that, ever. When you go inside Patagonia and just start asking basic questions about, do you know what's expected of you? Do you have confidence in the future? Do you believe in the purpose or the mission of the company? What you find is there's way more variation on that set of questions within Patagonia than between Patagonia and another company. There's far more variation inside a company than between companies. Now, CEOs don't want to say that because they're five miles behind the front line and they've got to try and figure out something to do to try to create a better set of outcomes for the company. And one of the levers they pull is the culture lever because that's all they can think of to do. But, but when you actually look at the real world, there's no such thing as a company culture. What there is instead are lots and lots and lots of teams. Inside of a company, there's lots and lots and lots of teams. And although you may join Patagonia, and therefore it may be in Patagonia's interest to have a talent brand that speaks to how they value people and what they stand for, that is what we call, those, those are peacock feathers for, pe for people. They're plumage, company plumage. And they're designed to attract you in like all plumages. So you join a company, but once you're there, how long you stay and how productive you are depends massively on what team you're on or teams plural rather. Because when you start looking at it, you find out that more than 65% of people working in America work on more than one team. So teams plural. And then when you look at things like performance or things like voluntary turnover, you find that those things vary inside a company according to which team you're on. When the person leaves something, the thing they're leaving is the team, the real specific people they bump into every day and have to work with. Well, gosh, what that means is not just that quote-unquote teamwork is important. It means that if we really wanted to build better work experiences for people, we would be razor or laser focused on, on learning about what do our best teams look like and how can we build more like them. We would make team joining the most important part of onboarding. Well, we don't. It's not only that we don't do that at the moment. We can't even see the teams which means we can't see the work. That's so funny right now, Elise. No company knows where the work is. Google, like great company like Google, has no idea how many teams it has or who's on them or which are the best ones. Has no idea. All the HR systems we have are, are sort of the Catholic Church or the Roman legions. Who reports to who boxes on an org chart? Right. Because HR systems are basically financial systems. But of course, most of the work we do isn't inside the boxes. It's in these dynamic and ephemeral teams. So it's one of those weird things where we've missed the most important unit of analysis in companies. We've missed teams. 
And as you know, of course, the beautiful thing about teams is they make weirdness useful. That's the point of a team. 50,000 years ago, when we made the first team, it was because different people had different qualities and you were fast and you were cunning and you had a great sense of smell and you were strong. And we figured out if we kind of put us all together, we might actually be able to do something together that we couldn't do alone. That's what a team is for. A team is for maximizing uniqueness. And that's so cool about what it is to be on a great team. If someone, yes, they make you feel part of something bigger than you, but they also see you and expect you to step into the best of you so that you can support the others. That's what a great team feels like. Well, we've missed all, we've really missed all of that, unfortunately, Um, at least in terms of the way that we try to build our organizations. We don't see teams and instead we try to exert control. And of course the best teams aren't doing that at all. The best teams are well-rounded precisely because each individual on them isn't. Mm-hmm. So that's the first lie. People, people don't care which company they work for. They care which team they're on. I could listen to you all day, Marcus, and I'm so glad we got this interview to be able to hear you over and over again, because I'm sure our listeners will want to replay this. And, and, and you do a beautiful job in your book of explicating just what you just said. So we can always rely on that, too. Um, but now let's talk then about another lie then, Marcus. So if we've been talking about the importance of teams, let's talk about this. One of the other lies that you talk about in the book, which is leadership is a thing. And you say that a leader is someone who, who has followers, plain and simple. And the only determin- determinant of whether anyone is leading is whether anyone else is following and this is the really fun part is you write that we follow spiky leaders those who have honed one or two distinctive abilities that they use to make their mark on the world so we follow spikes mm. well it's funny Le- leadership is a i mean people love the word leadership and the idea i suppose is that if you want to be a leader you need to go and acquire this thing called leadership <laughs> and we define leadership by saying, well, look, we've, we've studied uh, this big group of leaders and we've identified all the different qualities they have in common and we've created our model, our leadership model. And then if you want, in the model is a bunch of qualities or attributes or competencies you're supposed to possess. And then if you want to be a better leader, then we're going to teach you the competencies and we might even measure you against the competencies and pinpoint which ones you don't have so that you can acquire the ones you don't have so you can have more leadership. That's... Uh, simply put, that's what the leadership, the, the $8 billion leadership business in the U.S. is built around. And again, put your free-thinking researcher hat on for a second, and you'd have to go, well, first of all, let's examine when you put these, these lists of, I don't know, 50 great leaders up against the wall, do we find that they have anything in common? And the answer to that question is no, we, we find that they don't. Even the leaders in the same company, we find that they have really different approaches to the way in which they lead. And of course, that fits with all of our real-world experience anyway. Not, there are very, very successful leaders out there that we've all met, and they don't all look the same. In fact, they look really different. Um, so that then makes you go, well, gosh, well, then if we can't, uh, and this isn't sort of, I think that they're not the same. It's like when you do rigorous and repeated psychometric studies to try to measure what qualities do these leaders all have that make them similar to each other and different from everyone else, we can't find them. Like the science says it's not there. 
So then you go, well, what makes them a leader? And of course, that's where you bump into, oh, well, the only thing they do in common is they've got a bunch of people following them. And so the first point to make on leadership, of course, is followership is a thing. Leadership isn't. Leaders are real in the real world, but they're only leaders because they've managed to cultivate followership. What we should be studying is followership, not leadership, because leadership doesn't exist. We should be studying followership because followership does. When we ask a bunch of people, are you willing to give your life for this leader? Or are you willing to give your time and your energy to her vision of the future? We can ask questions like that of people. And when a whole bunch of people go, yes, 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 that's them just reporting on themselves, saying what their experience is. When a whole bunch of people go, yes, I would follow her through the darkest nights, then that's followership. That exists. We can understand it. That's what we should focus on learning about. And when you do that, when you really focus on what gets people to follow others, confidence is what leaders bring us, the best ones. The, the, the leader is saying, look, let's go around the corner. And the follower is going, I don't even know what's around the corner. And the leader's going, look, don't worry, follow me anyway. And the only reason why you get someone to actually follow you anyway is because you're turning their anxiety into confidence. You're not diminishing their anxiety. You're not demeaning it. You're saying, follow me around the corner because it's all going to be good. And so then you go, well, how do they do that? How do they turn anxiety into confidence? And obviously all of them do it differently, but one of the most powerful things you can see in the research is that we follow someone who clearly knows to the nth degree who she is and has taken a couple of skills or qualities that are relevant to us and has maximized them. And when we see that in a leader, we don't expect the leader to have everything. But when we see a leader that's taken herself really seriously in some area that's relevant to us, then we follow her around the corner because we know who she is going to be in any situation. We know that she's not uh, vague or she's not um, sort of a uh, Franken leader who's made up of a whole bunch of different weird traits that she's trying to try on for size. We know who she is, and therefore in any situation that's around the corner, we know how she's going to react and what she's going to focus on and how she's going to move. When we get that kind of clarity, we get confident. And so all of this stuff that we've taught leaders to, here are the 17 qualities of a leader, trying to acquire them all. No, no, that's a myth. If you want people to follow you, you've got to know really deeply who you are Turn that into spikes that people are going to hook onto because that'll make them more confident. We don't expect you to be perfect. In fact, as we say in the book, leadership or followership rather is first of all an act of forgiveness. We forgive you so many things you don't have if you've got one or two powerful ones that can help us move into the future. Marcus, that is so fresh and delightful. And on that note, let's grab our last break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We are near with Marcus Buckingham, a global researcher and thought leader focused on unlocking strengths, increasing performance, and pioneering the future of how people work. He's the founder of the Marcus Buckingham Company and the co-founder of Nine Lies About Work, a free-thinking leader's guide to the real world, which we've been discussing in today's program. He currently heads all people and performance research at the ADP Research Institute. He joins us today from Los Angeles, California. We'll talk more after the break. Stay with us.
Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Marcus Buckingham, a global researcher and thought leader focused on unlocking strengths, increasing performance, and pioneering the future of how people work. He's the founder of the Marcus Buckingham Company and the author of First Break All the Rules and Now Discover Your Strengths and also Nine Lies About Work. He currently heads all people and performance research at the EDP Research Institute. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. So for this last segment, Marcus, I wanted to cover two two lies, or I was going to call them fibs, lies is a better word, that you have in the book if we have time. The first one is the one that I have to tell you, Marcus, completely probably altered my being and the way that I look at how we how we measure and, and receive informa- usable information. And, and that's the idea that people can reliably rate other people. Oh my gosh, Marcus, the way that you talk about that in the book is so insightful and opens a huge door for people, including myself. So uh, the idea first that you know the, the way people actually rate each other is kind of disgusting when you read it in your book. So would you say a little bit about how do we tend to rate each other inside organizations first? We'll talk about that. Well, there's a lot of rating happening inside organizations, right? You've got performance rating at the end of the year. You've got potential ratings. If you're going to create a nine-box grid, it's performance and potential. You've got uh, more complex ratings where perhaps somebody that you report to is rating you on a list of required competencies or behaviors. And then, of course, it extends into even more complicated than that. You've got 360 surveys where not only your boss, but your peers and your direct reports and so forth are rating you on a list of qualities that you're supposed to have. So ratings are, are really prevalent in our world and, and how you get paid and if you're fired and if you're promoted and if you're moved to a different department, all of those things are mediated through these ratings. Um, in fact, if you work in the federal government, you can't get promoted to various levels up unless you uh, can show that your ratings uh, reveal that you have all the required competencies you're supposed to have. Um, ratings are everywhere, and they're going to be, there'll be more of them. I mean, uh, Ray Dalio at Bridgewater Associates has created an environment there where you've got an app and you walk around with the app and any interaction you have with anyone. Someone rates you on the experience that they had in the meeting or bumping past you in the hallway. Or, and these ratings are kept forever on you in what's called the transparency library. And Bridgewater Associates isn't an anomaly. Um, software companies coming out of Silicon Valley have been really heavily invested in that do constant ratings of you all the time. And so we're not going to get less of these ratings. We're going to get more. And your entire future, your entire life will be seen through these ratings. So on one level, this is a bit of an inside baseball lie, lie number six. 
But on another level, it's just super practical because your entire experience of work is, is seen through these racing. And the bottom line on this, Elise, as you saw from me in the book, is we've got 40 years of data on this, and it's really clear. Humans are horribly unreliable raters of other humans. The only thing that we're reliable rate, uh, raters of is our own experiences. Mm-hmm. We, can, we can rate our feelings. We can rate whether we feel confused. We can rate whether we feel frightened. We can rate, and of course the best example of this is, we can rate our own pain. And so when the doctor has given you an operation and comes in afterwards and, and wants to see how you're doing, the doctor, when they say, on a scale of one to 10, with 10 high, rate your pain, when you say three, she doesn't say, that's not three, I'm a doctor. <laughs> I actually know what your pain is. Your pain is a five. Besides, we run out of threes. And so, you know, so, so we know where, where there's real science involved, we know that reliable data is really important. And we know that all of these performance data, potential data, ratings data, none of it is reliable. In fact, what's really worrying about it is we actually know what causes the variance in ratings that you might be getting from your manager. What causes the variance isn't anything to do with you. What causes the variance is the manager. The manager has what's called an an idiosyncratic pattern of ratings. And she or he doesn't know it. It's not, and it's not a function of your gender or race. It's not a function of unconscious bias towards your gender or ethnicity. It's almost like they can't even see you at all. They have a natural pattern of ratings. They might use the entire scale. They might skew right. They might skew left. Um, they might just use the middle. Uh, they have this idiosyncratic pattern of ratings. And all the research on this shows that somewhere between 65 and 75% of the variance in all of the ratings on you are a function of the person doing the rating. They're not a function of you, Mm -hmm. which is weird because we pay you or promote you or train you as though your ratings given to you by other people reflect you, but they don't. They reflect the other people. And of course, one little addition to that is people say, well, it doesn't matter if one person's idiosyncratic, we'll add five more sources. We'll do a 360 and then we add all the ratings up and then the overall average is probably you. Well, for all of us who remember this time in math class, if you've got systematic error, as in, for example, if your thermometer is broken, then it doesn't matter how many rating or how many measurements of temperature your thermometer takes, the thermometer's broken. So more data just makes more error, not less. And in this case, our rating thermometer is broken. We have systematic error in all of our ratings. Okay. That's a huge problem. Yes, it is. These will never see you. Mm. Yeah, I, so that, that's what that's what that chapter is all about. I know, Marcus, and I'm telling you, it is so mind blowing how useful that is. And yet, there's just one quick quote that I want to say to add to that that just grabbed me. You say, "The idiosyncrasy of the rating pattern stems from the uniqueness of the rater and doesn't appear to have much of anything to do with the person being rated. In fact, it's pretty much as though the person isn't there at all." Oh my gosh! If that's not a problem, I don't know what is. Yeah, it's like we think that these rating tools that we have are, are windows that allow us to see a person. And the more specific and behavioral the questions in the rating system, supposedly it's a clearer window. But what we know from data is that it's not a window, it's a mirror. These rating systems, all of them, they're just me bouncing me back at me. And you can't train it out of people. I mean, this has huge implications for schools, obviously, because there's a ton of rating that goes on in schools. But but it has massive implications for the world of work. 
we all ought to be more data fluent. And a lot of this stuff that we're fed at work around our ratings and who we are because of the ratings and what we should do with us because of the ratings. Um, it, it, we, we, we need to pop this balloon before, we, before this thing gets out of hand. Um, we are not reliable raters of other people and we never will be. I cannot hold a concept like strategic thinking in my head and reach into your head and rate you on it and then turn to the person next to you, hold the constant concept in my head of strategic thinking and rate them on the same concept by reaching into their head. I can't do that. So that means all of my ratings on you are rubbish. They're just noise. And, you know, we, we need to actually look at that as a reality, which it is, be free thinking about it. Don't pretend it's not true, because actually it is true that we're unreliable raters. And then we're going to have to deal with that truth, which is that there's ways to do it. You know, what are we reliable raters of? Well, we are reliable raters of our own experience. I can tell you my pain. I can tell you if I plan to vote for this person or that person. I can tell you if I'm confused. I can tell you if I am passionate about our vision and mission. I can tell all those because that's just all me describing me, which is not not interesting. It's really interesting. And that's really good data. The bottom line, I think, on this, Elise, is that we've, we've just become, we've, we've overreached. We've stepped over the measurement bridge, and we're hurting people. And the good news, Marcus, that I really appreciate about your book is you come in and you show us how to write meaningful questions that will produce what we're looking for, and that is gold. So, listeners, if you're, if you're hearing this going, oh, my gosh, what do I do? He does explain beautifully in the book how to write questions that will produce reliable, variable, and valid information. So just know that that's there. Marcus, we're almost out of time, and I want to make sure we hit one more of your lies that is so important and a great way to finish the show, and that is lie number eight, work-life balance matters most. And you distinguish in the book that it's not balance between work and life that is the unhelpful idea, but that we have the categories wrong. You say what we all wrestle with every day in the real world is not so much work and life as it is love and loathe. Say more about that. Yeah. Well, this is a, we could have written a whole book on that. I mean, it's, um, nobody takes anyone's love seriously. And yet each one of us, if I go back to my brother and my sister, they just, they, there was emotional valence in different actions and activities and contexts and situations for, for my brother that was different from me. He was drawn to certain things more than I was. He got a kick out of different things than I did. Um, he got joy from different things than I did. At, at a really granular level, if you look at the actual activities that he found love in, those were really different for him really early on, from which came appetite, from which came practice, from which came all sorts of things. But the beginning was was the weird uniqueness of one's pattern of loves. You, uh, your first question to me was, what's your career love story? Mm-hmm. That's a really cool way to say it, actually. Um, at the very beginning of life, we unfortunately don't take these loves seriously. And yet, all of us deep down, we know there are certain activities that draw us in and where time flies by when we're doing them. We know that there, in a sense, the, 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 there aren't five love languages, to quote that Chapman book. There's nine million. There are nine million love, love languages. And the only person that speaks yours is you. And so what you want in life, whether it's at work, or whether it's you as a father or mother, or whether it's you as a friend or you in your community, um, you want to have as many um, activities, situations, contexts um, that are love-filled. 
you want, I don't just mean like with people you love. I mean, they, the activity itself contains with it a little jolt of something that's good for you, that lifts you up. That's what you want. You want an intentional imbalance between love and load. You want more loves than loads in all aspects of your life. Now, that's not easy because it begins with you going, you actually know yourself well enough to know what kind of activities you love. At the, at the one foot level of detail, can you, can you even think about that as you as a parent? You know which bits of parenting you lean into. And don't feel shame about the others. What are the ones that really lift you up? Um, it starts there. It starts by honoring the fact that your feelings about the activities you do in the week or the day, that your emotional reaction to them is different than someone else's. And we've got to help you figure that out and take responsibility for that. Not to be self-indulgent, but so that you can contribute more. So you can be more resilient. Um, the Mayo Clinic found that if nurses and doctors had only 20%, you they just had 20% of their job doing activities that they love, their levels of PTSD, their levels of burnout significantly fell. But it's funny, over 20%, if you get 30%, 35%, there wasn't actually that much of, an, of, a, of a benefit that came from that. It's almost like you don't need 50% of your life to be filled. It's almost like a little love goes quite a long way. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least that's what they found in the research. And so for us, telling someone to balance work and life is a, is a, is a setting you up for failure. No one's ever going to achieve it. And if you did, someone would be, you'd be saying to the people around you, don't move. I got it. Don't move. So balance is stasis. What we want is imbalance toward those things that we love. Why? Because it means that we can contribute more and continue to do it. Because the activities oh. themselves contain their own source of fuel. Marcus, that is a beautiful way to finish, and we are smack out of time. So let me say thank you from the bottom of my heart and my soul for joining us today. Thank you for giving us your gift. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Listeners, if you want to learn more about Marcus, his books, or his work, start by visiting his website, which is just simply marcusbuckingham.com. Last week, if you missed, if you missed the live show, you can catch it via recorded podcast. We were on there with Cheryl Lynn talking about how she made her life's dream come true and founding the Joy Elite Studios, where she and her team help inspire all on the joyful evolution of thought to vision, vision to dream, dream to goal, and goal to reality. Next week, we'll be on the air with Dr. Naya Sangwan, an internal medicine physician and founder of Intuitive Intelligence and author of Talk Rx. We'll be talking about how to understand where our emotions are generated and how we can understand and access them for optimal health. See you there. Remember that work is at least a third of our lives, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Together, we'll create a world where business operates conscientiously, leadership inspires impassioned performance, and employees are fulfilled in work that provides the meaning and purpose they crave. See you there. Let's work on purpose.